0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Negotiation. And on today's show, we talk with Bessie Lee, former CEO for WPP China, a company she spent 27 years with and founder at WithinLink, a China-based startup incubator and early-stage venture fund focused on marketing technology for China's advertising, media, and communications industries. On today's show, we cover a lot of ground, discussing the three decades of marketing and advertising that Bessie was witness to during her time with WPP, The work she's doing now helping MarTech startups, how the China market is actually similar to its Western counterparts, and how AI is disrupting the marketing industry in China and abroad. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Brought to you by WPIC, Marketing and Technologies. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Negotiation. And we're here with Bessie Lee, founder at WithinLink. Bessie, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So why don't you give us a a quick little five-minute overview of your time with WPP?
1: Okay. Um, first of all, WPP is the only company I've ever worked for right after I graduated from uh, graduate school. Um, I started with them in 1990 in Taiwan, where I'm originally from. Then 2012, I was relocated to China. Then um, I left WPP in 2017. So altogether, 27 years in just one company. Um, but I felt that that 27 years in WPP is, is sort of, prepare me for my startup and also prepare me for investing and incubating the startups that that I have on my portfolio now. So I'm really grateful for those 27 years. And within WPP, I came up through the media arms. So uh, out of the 27 years, the first uh, 23 was with uh, JWT Media, then Mindshare, then Group Band. Um, then my last four years uh, with WPP, I was the WPP China CEO. So that that's a very uh, brief summary of my, my time uh, with WPP. And 27 years, I think I've seen the three different decades uh, that WPP uh, went through. Um, it, it's, it's quite an interesting journey, and I'm very grateful to be part of it.
0: For those who might not know, can you tell us a little bit about what WPP is?
1: Hmm. WPP is um, a marketing, it's a holding company of various uh, marketing uh, agency groups. So the very famous one, like Ogilvy, uh JWT, uh, Wonderman Group BAM is a media company and PR, like you know, Hill and Norton, so on and so forth. I think at one point WPP has a total of close to 400 companies under their portfolio. Um, so, so that's what the is about, and I think at one point they uh, they're the, the world's largest. But I'm I i do not know whether they're still the world's largest because they went through some changes in the last two years. Uh, but they're on the way, to sort of bouncing back. Um, so hopefully they will they will become the world's number one again soon.
0: So you're with WPP for twenty seven years. Talk about how WPP changed and grew inside China as, you know, digital marketing was probably quite nascent back in mm. the beginning to where it is now. Can you talk a little bit about its growth and, and uh, tenure in China?
1: Sure. Um, I think compared to other holding groups, uh, because in the marketing world, there are at the moment five or six uh, major global holding groups. So WPP is one of them. You've got publishers, Omnicom, IPG, uh, Dental H's Network. I think compared to all the other holding groups, um, WPP did one thing right about China, which is enter China early. So WPP entered China actually with Y&R um, in the 70s, yeah, I think it was 1976. WPP um, didn't didn't acquire why not? Yeah, there was WPP the was formed in 1985, but the agency within WPP that you know be, that became WPP actually entered China early. So, and Martin Sorrell, um, he he started WPP in 1985, and in 1989, only four years after he started the group he held a one of the uh, board meeting in guangzhou in china so that that must be i'm i don't remember correctly that must be the the first holding group that has one of their global board meetings in mainland china i'm not talking about hong kong i'm talking about mainland china in guangzhou but he still had held his uh, board meeting in guangzhou so that i think that his attitude and what he has done that early in a way sort of set the the tone and manner and the, and the commitment of WPP to the market of China. Um, so he continued to introduce as many as possible that the, uh, the, the agency group within WPP to China. So when I was WPP China CEO, at one point we have um, 90 companies, 90 different entities or brand agency within WPP, that were in operation in China. Um, So we have 14,000 people and we're in, I think, probably 20 cities with real operation. And if we we count the the below-the-line promoters, we're in more than 400 cities in China. So it's that entering China early and the founder of the company was very committed to this market that send the message uh, throughout the group and the the rest just follow.
0: So you've, you've been with WPP um, let's say through three, almost three different decades. Can you mm. speak to what China went through as far as their media and advertising growth spurts and how they were breaking through different ceilings and what caused different um, growth stages in media and advertising in China?
1: Mm. Um. I think when when WPP first started it was late eighties. That's when uh, you know a lot of the multinational uh, brands started to invest very seriously in the Chinese market. And all of those multinational brands, I think WPP serves three hundred and forty brands out of the Fortune five hundred. All of them either are were already in China or are in in the process of entering the market. So that. You know, market entry gave WPP Group a fantastic growth. The first, we we call it the first bucket of gold for WPP. Um, We we just, you know, we have unlimited client service. I think it was between the 80s to the late 90s. So that was, you know, a a great, uh, good old days. Then what happened be- became actually a challenge to uh, holding group like WPP or the traditional advertising holding group, which is the turning point of the internet uh, advertising in China. Mm, before we talk about mobile, I think in- internet advertising or internet marketing um, became, they became a, a serious uh, subject when the internet users in China first hit, uh, hit that first 100 million users and i think that was in the late 90s or early uh, two, uh, 2000 so that's when everybody you know turned around and realized oh my god we we have internet that's now in the mainstream with 100 million users and there's so much so much time they spend on the internet so that that was when you know before that point digital marketing or digital planner was put in a corner and they were only given budget when the traditional media had used, used up and then, you know, you got a leftover. So they, they were working on a leftover budget. But 2000, it was a turning point. It was no longer just a leftover budget. The cl- all the clients wanted to know, what do we do with this new but unfamiliar territory? So WPP then, through acquisition or, and also through organic growth, have in, you know, developed and acquire and incubated digital agencies uh, within the group. So, what b- between 2000 to say the, the uh, 2011 2012, that was I would say the second growth spur for the group because of digital marketing. But but digital marketing in the piece on the PC age, it was you know it's just a digitalized of the traditional media. So you got the big portal, you got surge, you've got um you know early early uh online video sites they work still pretty much like traditional media, so the scale of an agency still made sense and and clients at back then were still enjoying the the new growth in the market so I think that's that that period offered w p p the second bucket of gold, but it was until the mobile hit the market um I think, uh, again, the mobile internet users uh, hit that first 100 million users in the, um, I think, 2008 or 2009, 2009, I can't remember. Um, But it was that time when, again, people suddenly realized mobile has got this big. And because of the arrival of mobile, we have so many different, I guess, apps that, at the time. Each app is different, and they re- it, it's no longer just a scale game. And at the same time, we've got WeChat that's on the, on the rise as well. Social is, is not just scale, but it's about content. It's about tailored content to mm-hmm. the users.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And also because WeChat, it, it also requires you to look into CRM. Uh, because you have to manage a uh, you know, corporate account for clients. Mm-hmm. And it's also about the same time that Alibaba's e-commerce uh, platform uh, was also gaining a huge traction in the market. And e-commerce, you know, when you try to, uh, Alibaba is an open system, it's not Amazon. Mm-hmm. So brands have to, you have to run your own stores. So running the uh, e-commerce store is is an expertise that doesn't exist in any of the holding company. Uh, Ogilvy didn't have that expertise. GroupM didn't have it. None of the PR agency had it. It was actually a specialist agency in the market that completely outcome, you know, originated in China. So clients had to hire those agencies to come in and help them run their, their store fund. And in e-commerce, it's it's all disciplines are happening almost at the same time, simultaneously. So it, it requires integrated marketing, which... Is the opposite of the holding group because each agency it's sort of compartmentalized, right? So they they only are responsible for their own area. So it's the mobile pr- plus the e-commerce and plus the social that started to uh, started to create challenges for the big holding group. Their scale no longer worked the beauty that they did before, and they don't have the special specialty that can satisfy clients and needs in the e-commerce, in the social content, in the uh, mobile-specific uh, marketing area. So it became a leak, leaking bucket. The, the local specialist agencies in China started to you know, steal the budget away from the, all the major agencies. And that's when most of the Haiti coding companies uh, started to struggle because their model was relying really just on men uh, men hours or human right yeah. uh, human capital mm-hmm. there's no technology there's no real data sitting in those holding group but when you're in the mobile world when you're in the, like i said e-commerce it requires integrated marketing you need you need to have have your hands on data and you need to work with at least automated technology in order to do constant A/B testing of your creative on the e-commerce storefront to know mm-hmm. which one yield the highest click, that that was a, that continued to be a challenge for uh, the traditional holding company as we speak today.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I, w- I would say those are the three, you know, if I may, the three different decades. The first two yeah. were golden years, but the last ten years it hasn't been fun. For, for traditional holding company.
0: Right. They've really had to scramble to try to keep up.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, not just scramble, but... Um, a scramble is fine. First of all, you admit that you don't have these skills and you're happy to embrace uh, you know, or, or build a new ecosystem by embracing smaller specialist, specialist agency. And you find a way to... Establish a new collaboration among them. Then you can still bring integrated services to the clients. But what happened was uh, in that last uh, ten years, the first five years was really denial hmm. that uh, you know uh, you know we can do that, no problem. Uh, we can just acquire another company. But if you look at a lot of the agencies that uh, WPP or the other uh, competitors acquire in China, they're they're still traditional model that require. Human capital only. Mm-hmm. They still don't don't join the group with technology with data. So that first five year was still in denial, and they're still celebrating success. It wasn't until the second five years in that last decade that I think the holding group realized we can't continue to deny. We we really need to either through acquisition uh, or through some sort of partnership with big platform to really. You know, bring skill sets um, to to compensate the missing pieces from the group. So that's why you will see all the holding group um, started to acquire data company, started to acquire uh, you know martech uh, company, uh, especially in the US.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So so that that's what I, I witnessed. witness. And the reason why I left in t- twenty seventeen was I I when I was WPP China CEO. I, I, I can see that we were struggling. And I was trying to work with several major agency CEOs to see whether we can turn things around. But I just realized, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just too difficult to break that mentality. And I only have 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Where, where should I spend that 24 hours that will would, that would, that would yield or drive a better impact uh, to the marketing world? I just decided to leave the company and spend time with marketing uh, technology startup and help them break into this, you know, old and dated ecosystem and see whether we could get clients and get agencies to, to embrace technology. Because I personally think that, um, think that the agency is still a valuable proposition, but the agency need to evolve with the market and evolve with, with technology and data. So you are still ahead of the client. What happened now is most of the agencies are falling behind the clients when it comes to understanding how technology works, the beauty in marketing. Mm-hmm. So, so clients started to see agency just another commodity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you can only do execution work, then that's, that's, I will give you just execution work, and I will only pay you the execution Works fee. I will no longer pay you the fee for the brain. Mm. Um, so that that's the challenge that I'm seeing. Um, but I I wanted to help agencies that who are, who are ha- happy to embrace happy to work with martech company. Then we through these martech uh, young companies, we can help agencies to turn their their destiny around.
0: Give us mm. the. 30 second pitch on what within link is so that everybody's up to speed on exactly what you're doing now.
1: So WithinLink right. is a uniquely positioned strategic investor and incubator of marketing technology startups in China. We insisted on boutique portfolio so we can spend more time helping our portfolio companies expedite their growth. So we we're a small fund anyway. We're not like the big you know big fund where they will have 150 and 200 portfolio companies. We only at the moment still, we only have 16, one, six, 16 companies on our portfolio, but we get to spend really quality time and much more involved than most financial investors in looking into how we can help them grow, how we can help them expedite that growth so that they can, uh, you, know, ha- you know, we work together to break into that old uh, traditional uh, marketing world much quicker, much faster,
0: Got it. That's that's great. And we need more of those niche vertical focused mm. um, and with with experts like yourself that are involved that truly know and understand the industry and have the Rolodex and the mm. partnerships and the ability to truly mm. help them grow. Mm. What would you say are some of the highlights of recent innovations uh, happening in China now that you're so deeply embedded in the startup ecosystem there with regards to MarTech? Mm.
1: If you see, I mean, there are all sorts of, you know, marketing technology innovators and innovations in market, but the core of their model and, or the core among the users are still social, mobile, and recently artificial intelligence. So quite a, quite a numbers of microfolio portfolio has got artificial intelligence in their offering. And right now, because central government has given a, you know, overarching direction and strategy and measurable KPI of the AI industry development in, in in China. So AI now is a highly encouraged, highly invested, highly incubated sector. So you come across a lot of companies that you know started to have uh, if they have AI, they will have stronger AI offering. If they don't have their probably in the process of embedded AI into their marketing uh, solutions clients. So I would say social mobile and artificial intelligence are in the center of most recent innovation coming out of China.
0: Is China truly mobile first, mobile only, or given that that has been said for, you know, five, six, seven, eight years now, is there a change Mm -hmm. to that statement or does it still stand true?
1: I think that statement evolved. Uh, that statement first started by saying uh, mobile first, but now it has evolved into mobile only. PC is no longer relevant uh, to users. So that's why today, if I if I come to a, or if I go to a client's meeting and I I look at them or you know any company that's still looking at what they can do to. To optimize their website on PC, I I, I just I was just a headachey because you would just be wasting a lot of investment on something that's no longer relevant to the use to the to the Chinese consumers. So now it's the mobile only.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the speed of the market in China? I mean, we know it's different. Maybe you can speak a little bit to how it's different. But then, how does that affect? being able to do advertising media and communications in china
1: okay um I, I know that you know you and a lot of your audiences are probably hear so much about people telling you oh china is different china is different um i only agree that phrase that 50 percent. i think that phrase is only half right china has a lot of things in common with the rest of the world but you know, there are areas that China is unique. Uh, I think speed is, is one of them. China is still a relatively new market. It only opened to the world about forty years ago. And marketing industry is only roughly 30-year-old uh, sector in China. So when I say marketing, I you know, include uh, brands coming into this market, presenting themselves to the consumers. So the consumers in China are constantly searching for the next new things or next big things to improve their living quality, to differentiate their lifestyles from others, to maximize the potential for earning more money or generating more savings. So you will see the trend of low loyalty because they're the, the, the consumers, I mean, they're bombarded with new offerings, new brands every day. So they're constantly searching for that next big things. It's very easy for them to shift. And uh, Chinese affluent consumers uh, for a lot of the sector tend to be much younger as well. So they have the, I'm telling you, they have the lifetime to experience the next big things, the next new things, whether it's new gadget, new design, new brands, or new life. So when they're constantly chasing for the next big things, it, it actually presents tremendous pressures. For companies who are chasing after these users. So they have to come, you know, again, constantly coming up with new news, whether it's new product news. Um, If you're a Kentucky fried chicken, you need to have new uh, menu items, you know, constantly to keep that, so keep the, uh, you know, your users curious about what you're doing. And because, you know, that urge of coming up with new things or that pressure a lot of the uh, companies will introduce uh, you know, new features when they're only 60, 70% percent ready rather than 100% ready. That, that is probably you know, unique in China. It's very different from the West. I, I know that in America, a lot of the companies will want to only introduce a feature when they're 100% ready, but not in China. They will throw it out into the market when they're 60, 70% ready and then you introduce a new, a new feature and the, the customers or the cons- consumer are curious about the new feature that they will continue to engage with you. They, and they will give you, and because of that engagement, they will give you feedback, real feedback. Then you need to make sure, you meaning the companies, right? Once you introduce a 60, 70% ready, a new feature, you then have to quickly move on to a constant evolving or improving mode because you're getting real-time feedback from your users, then you have to quickly improve or modify your features to answer to those uh, feedback from the users. So if you look at like, WeChat, that, that's what WeChat is doing, and that's what Alibaba's e-commerce uh, platform has been doing since, I don't know, 2002. They're constantly evolving. Even today, Alibaba is a dominant player, but they're still evolving. They're still introducing uh, new features to the users. So, I think it's that, you know, a cat and mouse kind of chasing. Users are chasing the next big things, the next new things. Companies are chasing the users. That just creates anxiety among users, among consumers, and creating anxiety among companies. So, everybody is in a constant chasing game. That's the speed. I, that's my, my take, my understanding of why speed is so important in China.
0: Speed and anxiety.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I always think that China, that A in China, is stands for anxiety. Really.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's just it's very competitive, right? It's the wild wild. It we, is. It's the wild wild East for a reason. You spoke a little bit about AI before, and I wanted to ask mm. you about that, um, especially in the in the marketing technology industry. How is AI affecting? Um, innovation in, in that industry and, and affecting and creating technologies that are emerging now?
1: I think the widely adopted dynamic creatives technology is a good example of how um, AI marketing technology is affecting the way that we do marketing in China. For for, instance, for example, we talk about Alibaba's e commerce platform, uh, Taobao and Timor. I think at the moment they probably have more than 20 million stores or merchants. They're doing business on that plat on that platform. For every product that are display at storefront, creative is one of the key drivers for you know clicks or conversion among your users. So Alibaba has recently introduced a dynamic creative SaaS service called Luban um, for the millions and millions of store operators to adopt. What they do is they use a very simple a, a very quick automation technology to match your product uh, shots and your logo with the right background, with the right sort of mood, uh, creative. So you can quickly assemble a very simple creative for your storefront and upload it to your storefront and then just monitor the performance of the, the ads. If the ads is not yielding the kind of clicks and the conversion you, you set to as a KPI, then you quickly uploaded a different version. So it's very often that the storefront operator upload a new creative in the morning, and they will upload another version of the creative in the afternoon. Now, that's a kind of speed and automation that it's almost impossible in the traditional creative agencies. Because still today, uh, creative uh, agencies still are asking clients to give them at least one month lead time to develop a banner <laughs> or develop a, uh, a video uh, ad. But one month, one month could be a one-year difference in China. So you took one month, and finally when you come up with the creative, Market probably change already, user probably change already, and whatever creative that you come up with is no longer relevant. So you, you, you have to change anyway. So so it's it's that type of dynamic creative uh, automation technology that that is really changing changing the way that marketers are looking at how what's the quickest way um, to use AI technology and auto, to combine AI and automation and, and to streamline my creative uh, creation process. So Luban is an example. And one of my portfolio company called Kuaizhi Keji, Kuaizhi Technology, Technology, uh, has produced an even better product than Alibaba's Luban. Um, so what they're, they're doing is working with, you know, they when they work with clients' creative agency, they will ask the creative agency not to worry about developing your creative all the way to finished artwork. You just create as many versions of the different creative elements in a creative, uh, like headlines, body copies, product shots, background. And they will discuss with the creative agency and clients to give tags to, to all the elements. Then once the tags uh, are, you know, are attached to each of the elements, then they try to match the tag with the user behavior and user interest tag. The matching tags, then the system will automatically assemble the creative together. So within a matter of I don't know thirty seconds, the system is able to create hundreds, if not thousands, of different variations of creative for for a brand's commercial, whether it's you know a banner or it's a um, uh, video. They can do video as well or wow. H five, so that that's how quickly these tech companies can help clients turn around. I mean, we're talking about tactical mm-hmm. campaign material, so they're they're quick helping clients quickly turn around. Uh, you know, tactical market, you know marketing material to to catch the speed in the market.
0: Where are agencies and brands spending their time and money and resources, creating assets for like what platforms are out there. I'm guessing there's not a lot of spend built into the budget for billboards.
1: But you know, that's funny. Cause in, in China, the number one uh, media now uh, is, is digital media, right? That includes mobile. Mm-hmm. So the clients will spend the biggest percentage of their budget on um, um, digital out-of-home, when you say billboard, whether it's billboard, the traditional billboard, or the digital out-of-home mm. combined, they continue to be the second largest media in China,
2: mm.
1: not television. So it, in a way, out-of-home, um, I guess in some categories and in some sector, is is a bit immune to the, the, the attack or the, or the disruption caused by the digital media so out of home is still very big in china and now a lot of them out of home started to evolve into digital out of home as well and we have platform in china that does uh we call it the smart out of home so they do dynamic not sorry that that means sorry programmatic buy in digital out of home uh led sign lcd lcd signs as well so that's uh, they continue to suck away a lot of money from advertisers' budget.
0: How can transparency benefit the advertising ecosystem in China or, or even globally? I'm interested, you know, a lot of how it, how important it is in China, but you can speak globally as well.
1: Um, I think the agency uh, industry globally, I'm not just talking about China globally, mm-hmm. right now is uh, under a lot of scrutiny. Um, i think F- FBI in in North America in the, in the US uh, in October last year has just announced that they're they're starting kick, they kick started a, a formal investigation into uh, how agency is operated, whether there's any misconduct, uh, for instance, taking rebate or kickback from the vendors or using the name of programmatic buy to. Um, margin manipulate on clients' uh, media placement or taking, mm. taking in gifts or uh, going on holiday, paid holiday by the vendors. Mm. Is that sort of misconduct the FBI is investigating? Um, it, in that sense, China is no different. In China, we have a lot of transparency issues as well. I think two weeks ago, we had an interesting uh, viral uh, uh, on the internet in China there's this new sort of new technology entrant company. He hire a so-called social influencer marketing agency in the South of China to do a social campaign for him. Um, so they said they will hire, you know, 300 KOLs and they will post. So this guy, they run this e-commerce, they have their own e-commerce uh, store. So this guy was very excited as said, oh, finally we're spending, you know, serious money, getting influencers to endorse our product. So when the campaign went live, uh, especially this one particular KOL, very popular. So he was sitting in front of the laptop and watching his, her fans saying, oh, this is a fantastic product. I've already made purchase. I've you know, uh, placed the order. Uh, thank you so much for endorsing it, blah, blah, blah. So this guy was so excited. He's like, wow, I'm making great uh, your sales tonight. Then he walked over to his e-commerce team and said, how is our sales doing? And the e-commerce team said, S "Still, you know, so far we have no traffic coming into our store, let alone booking. We have no, we have zero booking that night. But on the on the social uh, campaign, you can see fans claiming they have already placed orders. So a lot of those are actually machine generated. Mm. It's not even real. And it, it it it's it's every brand. No brand is immune to that sort of uh." mispractice if you like so at the moment it, what's sad was because most of most of the players in the market play the play the, play the wrong way if you like they don't want transparency all the numbers are inflated numbers then the people who are doing it genuinely they don't get noticed and brands are just uh, creating like you know a, a clients internally They are just creating an illusion, really, with all those big impression numbers, click numbers, conversion Mm -hmm. numbers.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Not a lot of those are really actually help the sales. So the reason why I started talking about, you know, transparency will help the market, was I think it's time that we really need to get rid of those rats, if you like, in the market, and let the people who are doing genuine campaigns get noticed And help clients, first of all, have a fresh look into how they should redesign their KPI, and therefore use the you know the genuine players to do their marketing, and let marketing be real marketing instead of just chasing big numbers so that you you deliver your KPI. You can report to your big boss, and your big boss can report back to the bigger boss, and everybody got promotion. But it's a promotion based on a whole lot of illusion.
2: Yeah. Numbers. yeah
1: um so i'm I'm hoping uh you know again some of my portfolio companies are you know in the transparency line of work so hopefully me together with them we can start creating smaller you know impact in the industry then we can get attention then we can kickstart or trigger something that could get you know become a much bigger impact in the company in in, in the market we i would really like to see transparency uh at least in china I, I can't speak for the other market but at least in china
0: i love that bessie i think it's incredibly admirable and I, I completely agree do you have any tips or tricks or advice for brands like for 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 the companies to be able to help them see through the you know the the smoke and mirrors of what's being shown to them as far as what these agencies might be doing, where a lot of it's not real.
1: Mm. Um, my advice, or my ask rather, mm. is if I can speak directly to the global CEO mm. or CMO, mm-hmm. because because the the wrongdoing actually started with how KPI is set, mm. and they are the only people. Or not only, but they're the first batch of people who need to start accepting that the KPI was wrongly designed, and therefore you trigger the wrong type of behavior. So they need to redesign the KPI and get that KPI cascaded down to each of those markets, especially key markets like China. Then you will trigger the right type of behavior. So for me, talking to the China CMO, there's no use because they had their bigger boss in the headquarter to answer to. So my ask is, if I can just talk to the global CMO at least, show them the real picture, show them the big illusion they, they're, they're seeing every day, and hopefully we can get them to embrace a real issue and, and redesign their KPI, and then we finally can see the right type of behavior being triggered. And that force has to come from the very top.
0: You spoke mm-hmm. about bots. Are bots prevalent in the marketing and advertising world in China? And if they're a problem, how big of a problem are they?
1: How oh, they're a big problem. I I know that people say on average 30, 40% of the media or advertising are fake, but at one extreme it, Case I've seen ninety um, percent of the placement was fake. I would say because I'm also a, a member of the Mobile Marketing Association in China. I was the founder and also you know the, the co-chairman for two years. And through the tracking uh, SDK that we also association has developed, and we look at you know what's happening in the market. I would say at least fifty percent of most of the budget spent in, in this market are either being seen by bots or, or machines. It's not real human. That's how serious the problem is.
0: Uh, last question we ask everybody, what is your number one piece of advice for people or companies who want to go and do business in China?
1: My advice would be to ask, answer yourself one fundamental question, which is, do you really need to come to China? Because if you don't, don't come. But if you do, come with 100% commitment. Don't just come with your lips because you're not going to succeed. You're going to fail miserably in China. Come with full commitment and do it in the China way. That's that's how you're going to break into this market.
0: Bessie Lee, founder of WithinLink, former CEO of WPP in China, let me ask, how can people get in touch with you and connect with you, like you, share your content, so on and so mm-hmm. on? Potentially, they're a startup that want to get in, involved with within Link. Please tell us, where can people go?
1: Well, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. Just search Bessie Lee, uh, Bessie Lee uh, of WithinLink. You should be able to find me on LinkedIn. If not, uh, Bessie.LeeWithLink.com uh, is my, seat, my uh, email.
0: Bessie, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I thoroughly enjoy.
0: Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China.